Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> good evening, good evening, and welcome to Calvary Chapel, Chapel Hill. And if this is your first time visiting us tonight, thank you for being here for such an important evening. Israel, a cup of trembling. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to delve into the Word of God and see what the Word of God says about Israel and what we do with that in the context of the times that we are in. So I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and we will dig right into the teaching for tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord God. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lord, and dig into your word, Father, to see all that you say about your land and your people, Israel, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for all of the promises to come, Heavenly Father. And Lord God, I pray that tonight you help each and every single one of us to prepare our hearts, minds, and souls, Lord, to push aside the distractions and to learn and glean wisdom, Heavenly Father, from your word, that promise that comes from your word, Heavenly Father. And I pray that you enable each and every single one of us, Lord, after this time tonight to be able to leave here better equipped, Lord to stand for truth in these times, Lord, to stand in the gap and to help people understand what Israel truly means by your word. Thank you for this night, Lord. Be with each and every single one of us as we present, Heavenly Father, that it would be the words that are needed from you for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So we'll begin this evening with Pastor David. Well, good evening. Uh, first of all, I want to um, commend Pastor Vince for for even doing this um, because what we're going to cover tonight, I think, is so needed in the greater church. It grieves me to see factions of the of the greater church um, that are completely missing what the Bible has to say about Israel. And and of course, uh, we live in very very unique times. Um, Israel and the Jewish people have been in sharp focus ever since uh, the events of October the 7th. Um, the ruthless slaughter and the kidnapping uh, and the raping of innocent Jewish civilians by the terrorist group known as Hamas has prompted the government of Israel to launch what for them is an existential mission to go into Gaza and to once and for all wipe out the terrorist group known as Hamas, that vows to annihilate the Jewish people. And of course, in the course of uh, that mission, innocent civilians that live in Gaza have lost their lives. And this is at least in part due to the fact that Hamas is, is perfectly uh, happy to use these innocent people as, as human shields. And so obviously, uh, things that have gone on there, have brought to the surface widespread hatred and disapproval of the Jewish people, not just those who live in Israel, but those that live throughout the world, even in our own country. Israel has been accused of being an apartheid state and an imposter in a land that does not belong to them. Uh, from the river to the sea has been the battle cry of Hamas and those that support what they stand for, which is to annihilate the Jewish people and to take all of that land that we know of as the country of Israel from the Mediterranean Sea to the River Jordan. And much of the, of the world now holds Israel in derision because of this incursion into 
the, the uh, Gaza Strip. And um, I personally believe, and I think we'll make a case for that tonight, that this is due to the fact that they have uh, a misunderstanding of history of the land and of biblical prophecy. And, uh, and sadly, those same qualities of ignorance of history and ignorance of the word of God are resident in certain quarters of the church. And this has led people who name the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior to believe that God is done with Israel. God has been done with Israel. Israel bears no significance whatsoever concerning what scripture lays out. And that the Jewish people are a people to be hated, to be discriminated against, to be persecuted because of all the trouble that they, that they uh, cause in the world. And so the purpose of the evening that we're having right now is to put these current and yet tragic events into the context of biblical history and biblical prophecy. On the one hand, what we're witnessing there in Israel is tragic. It's heartbreaking. It, it, it's confounding because it seemingly is an impossible situation to resolve. But on the other hand, what we see going on in Israel right now is exciting from the standpoint of how it fits into biblical prophecy and how it continues the fulfillment of the things that God has said about his people Israel. And I hope you're going to see tonight that there is a superhighway that runs throughout the Bible, paved with prophecies concerning the Jewish people and God's plan and purpose for them and how the things that are happening right now simply complete or continue to complete that puzzle. And so to better understand the turmoil that's taking place there uh, in Israel right now, this part of the study, I'll do the first part, uh, Art's going to do the second part, and then Vince will come up for the final part. This part, we're going to focus on three basic questions that frame what's going on there in Israel. First of all, the question of Israel as God's chosen people. Why did he choose them? And what is the significance of that choice? And then secondly, I'm going to touch on why is there such a hatred for the Jewish people, both now and throughout all of history? And Art is really going to drill more specifically into that point um, when he's up here. And then finally, the question that really uh, underscores the conflict that's going on right now in Israel. And that is, does Israel have a right to be in that land and to call it their own? And so, first of all, um, let's focus on this issue of Israel as God's chosen people. And I personally believe, I've come to know this now in the last couple of months, that answers to biblical questions begin in Genesis. And we're going to see that here tonight. Uh, if, we, uh, if we open our Bibles to the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 details the fall of humanity, keeping in mind that in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we can assume that from the creation of humankind until this chapter, and that could have been millennia, we don't know. But until that time, human beings lived in perfect harmony with God. They lived in perfect fellowship with God, and the world was free of all sin. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, 
the value proposition that Satan gives to Eve and Adam that ultimately takes humanity into the dark recesses of sin. Because there we read, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, you can disobey God. You're not going to die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, that is the fruit that was forbidden, forbidden, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there you have the two elements of this value proposition. First of all, you will not surely die. And second of all, you will be like God. That, by the way, is the default switch that every human being who is born into the world is set on, that they are God. They are the center of their own little universe. And then we move over to the 15th verse of chapter 3, and we see a curse and a promise. God's pronouncement to Satan because of what he has caused. And in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verse 15, God promises this, and in this is contained both a promise and a curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now in this one uh, little concise verse, what we get is God's promise that ultimately a redeemer is going to be brought into, onto the earth to redeem mankind. And we are told that this redeemer is going to be a human being. He's going to come through the woman. And he is ultimately going to bring an end to Satan, to sin, and to death. Now, two things result from this fateful moment in human history. First of all, Satan receives dominion, a dominion over the earth that once was held by human beings. Now, he doesn't have ultimate unfettered dominion over the world. God still has that. But very much was, was given to Satan in terms of control over the world. The Bible makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, he's called the God of this age. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air. And in John 12.31, he is referred to as the ruler of this world. And so we have this conflict that has been born of sin. And Satan knows that a redeemer is coming. And of course we know that Satan hates what God loves. Now enter the plan. Genesis 3.15 made it very clear that the redemption that God promised would not come from an angel. It would not be from a mere fiat of God to simply say, okay, you're all redeemed. He could have done either of those. No. Genesis 3.15 makes it very clear that God's redemption would come in the form of a, of a human being who is fully human as you and I, but also fully God. And that human being would have to come from a people a people that God would choose among those of the earth. We've, we move forward in, in our study of Genesis to Genesis chapter 12, which uh, Vince so sagely uh, started our evening with. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see the beginning of what becomes known as the Abrahamic covenant. We read there, Now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before God changed it to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. 
I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, in this particular pronouncement by God, this promise to Abraham, uh, we have uh, three very distinct promises encapsulated in this one pronouncement. First of all, God's promise of a progenitor of the Messiah, the one who would ultimately start the lineage, the human lineage that would lead to Messiah. That's this man, Abram, who will ultimately become Abraham. The second thing that we see here is that a a nation is going to come from this man, Abraham, and this nation is going to have a special favor from God. They are going to be favored by God above all other peoples on the earth. And so much would they be favored that anyone who would bless them will themselves be blessed. And those who would curse this nation will be cursed of God. And then the third thing, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time, there's a grant of land. There is the beginning of a grant of land. Uh, And this is something that becomes expanded over the course of time uh, and over the course of moving through the book of Genesis. Now, about the land, the covenant from God about the land will be repeated multiple times and more information will be provided as we make our way through the different chapters of Genesis. Uh, Look, for example, at Genesis chapter 13, the very next chapter, verses 14 and 15. There... And this is, this is now just after Abraham and his nephew Lot have decided it's time we need to kind of split up. You've got huge flocks. I've got huge flocks. So Lot, you choose land that you want to occupy. I'll, cho- I'll take what's left, so to speak. And after that, God speaks to Abraham in verses 14 and 15. And this is what he says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes Now, and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. Forever. And then this covenant is confirmed yet again in Genesis chapter 15, between verses 12 and 21. And there um, we see, this this is the chapter that details the actual formalization of the covenant between God and Abraham. And the interesting thing about this is that whereas typically when a covenant was formed in that day, the two covenant makers would come together and go through the ceremony. But in this case, only God goes through the ceremony of the covenant, which, which conveys to us that it is a, an unconditional unilateral covenant. It's God granting to Abraham unconditionally. And there we read between verses 18 and 21 of chapter 15. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then God will repeat or substantiate this same covenant in Genesis chapter 17. Um, he en- emphasizes that this grant is everlasting. God repeats the promise to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26. 
and Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28. And so it's very clear that the, the patriarchs of the Jewish people, this people now called out through the loins of Abraham, that they have a grant of land, and it is a land grant that is everlasting, okay? Now, the interesting thing, because people will say, well, look at history. They were kicked out of that land multiple times. They were spread across the whole world. Well, the Lord knew that, of course, this would happen. Art will probably speak about this in a, in a few moments, um, but... There is the, what is known as the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant that is detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and the first couple of verses of, of Deuteronomy 30, where uh, there is more specifics given about this grant of land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 4 and 5, we read, If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. God actually anticipated that people would try and make a claim to the land because Israel had been expelled from it for a time. And yet he says, oh, oh no, 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 that's not how it works. It is your land forever. Now, here's the interesting thing. People are fighting over a little strip on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And they are making a case that this is not Israel's land. This is the Palestinians' land, etc. Well, if you look at the land grant in specifics, described there in Genesis 15, which we quoted a moment ago, also in Gen uh, Joshua chapter 1, here's what it includes. It includes everything from the Nile River in Egypt to Lebanon. That would be sort of the south to north axis of the land grant. And everything from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River, which would be the west to east axis of the land grant. The, this is a permanent possession given to Israel that includes all of modern day Israel, all the territory currently occupied by the Palestinians, which is the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, some of Egypt, some of Syria, all of Jordan, and even some of Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Israel currently only possesses a tiny fraction of what God has actually given to them. And they will only possess all of that when the Lord Jesus comes to reign and rule. Now, you might ask, well, why did God choose these people? Well, it has everything to do with his sovereignty and nothing to do with their merits. Uh, the Bible tells us very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, God says there in, in verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of people. And in the next verse, he says, it's because I love you. And that is, his, that is his sovereign choice. It's certainly not because they were cooperative and faithful. In Exodus 32, 9, he said, I've seen this people. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. God knows who he was dealing with. In fact, I look at it this way. Israel's unfaithfulness and stubbornness is a perfect foil for the faithfulness, the grace, the mercy, and the love that is our Lord God. You might say that Israel is a billboard for God's grace. Now here's the critical point you got to take away from on this because there are so many people who are directing hatred and, and uh, persecution against the Jewish people because they find them personally objectionable. And here's the thing we cannot lose sight of. We are not called to love and support Israel on the basis of their merits. 
The truth of the matter is many Jewish people, especially in Israel, they, they, many don't believe in God at all, and they certainly don't practice the, Jew, the Jewish faith. We love and support Israel on the basis of God's merits, on the basis of God's word. God's word tells us, we saw it, that he will bless those that bless Israel, he will curse those that curse Israel, and, uh, and we need to understand that Israel is critical to the plan that God has established for our salvation. And, uh, and so we need to understand that God has a purpose for them, had, has from the beginning had a purpose for them. Uh, first of all, they would be the ones who would bring forth the Messiah, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Secondly, they would be the ones who would bring forth and then steward the word of God, which they did and have done. And thirdly, they were called to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.6 says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, on that count, they failed. And Art will address that in more detail as to how that particular miss on their part affects where they are today. But um, this is something that we have to understand is that they have been and are critical to God's plan of redemption of human beings. And that is the merit upon which we love the Jewish people. It's God's merit, not theirs. Now, why does the world hate the Jewish people? Well, uh, we go back to our trip in the garden in Genesis 3.15. And God is establishing there that, that uh, the seed of the woman will come and will crush the head of Satan. Satan hates two things. He hates what God loves and he hates anything that ultimately means his demise. Well, guess what fills both counts? The Jewish people. Because they are the ones who will bring forth that which will ultimately destroy him. That is the Messiah and God has a special sovereign love for these people. And so they are hated. And so we have to understand that Satan being the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, his position as such means that he has the capability to influence the political systems of the world, the culture of the world, the philosophies that predominate the world. And in all of these, there is the poison of hatred for the Jewish people. And so we find that the world has, through the ages, persecuted, and hate, not everybody, but, but there has been this strong uh, current of hatred, irrational hatred. Uh, Pharaoh's Egypt, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Europeans during the Middle Ages, the Nazis, the Arab world. We see it time and again. Now, uh, if you would, turn in your Bible to, uh, to Psalm 83. Because here we see a prophecy fulfilled concerning the world's predisposition to hate Israel. And just looking at the first eight verses, we read there, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their hand. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. And consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. That the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and of the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia. With the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also have joined them. They have helped 
the children of Lot. Now, there is some scholarly discussion as to whether this particular passage and this particular psalm describes a specific battle that's uh, in, in the future or in the past. And there are those that believe that it does describe such a battle. Uh, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, for example, he says that uh, if this is indeed referring to a specific battle, why then the, the uh, War of Independence in 48, uh, the, the uh, Six-Day War in 67, and the Yom Kippur War in 73 would be fulfillments of this very prophecy. But whether it is or is not a specific battle, it is clearly a description of the hearts of those who hate God and therefore hate his people. When you see, for example, in verse 4, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that's right out of the playbook of Iran and Hamas. They have literally said those very things in public. Okay? And so we, we are living in a fulfillment of this Psalm 83. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, if you look at those, those verses... Um, here, we see um, the very place from which we got the title for this particular study. Uh, because in those verses, uh, 1 through 4 of Zechariah chapter 12, we read this. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding people when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people, all who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Well, look at what's happening there right now. First of all, we see that it is a, a, a cup of trembling. Uh, it's, that, I think, is the language that's used in the King James Version. Here it's referred to as a cup of drunkenness. Under either usage of the language, what we're being told is it, it is evoking an irrational response from the people surrounding it. And this is something we see going on right now in Israel. We've seen it over the last century, really, where... People uh, in those nations around Israel have had this manic uh, desire to possess Jerusalem. You realize that Jerusalem is mentioned over 800 times in the Bible? You know how many times it's mentioned in the Quran? Zero. And yet this is a, a place that, that the Islamic world absolutely must occupy and throw the Jewish people out. Um, it's, a, it's a heavy stone for all the world. Look at the burden that the world has been under since, really, since 1948 to the present, but even before that. The whole world trying to figure out, how, what do we do with, with this nation? How do we deal with these people? And, and this one little nation has become sort of the hub of this wagon wheel of confusion and conflict throughout the whole world. Because it is a heavy stone, and God has purposely made it such for reasons that he has. We're seeing the fulfillment of these two prophecies right now in what's going on in Israel. And so we finally come to really the central question that's being fought over. Does Israel have a right to occupy the land today? Do they have, do they have any calling to be there? Do they have any right those that take the Palestinian cause will point out how there have been Palestinian people there since Roman times. The, the land was even called Palestine. 
uh, which was purposely done, by the way, to offend the Jews. It had nothing to do with who had rights to it. And so I'm here to tell you that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and others of the prophets that are recorded in our Bible, all have prophesied that Israel will be back in the land. They will be in the land in the last days before Jesus Christ comes for his church and then returns with his church to reign and rule. This is why, in spite of the tragedy that's unfolding, these are exciting times. We should be we should feel blessed that we live in a time such as this, that we have seen with our eyes what these prophets have said. Prophet Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12, it shall come to pass in that day, which is the day we're talking about right now, that the Lord shall set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea, which means all the coastal areas of the whole world. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Exactly what happened from the end of the 19th century right up until the present time. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. May 14, 1948. In one day, a document is signed and the nation Israel is reborn. Same land, same name, same language, same currency. Never happened in the history of the world. Jeremiah prophesied about their return from the land. Immediately before the coming tribulation, the Lord will cause the Jews to return to the land. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And they are possessing it at great cost, but they're doing it. Jeremiah gives assurances of Israel remaining the chosen people forever. This is a, a, a couple of verses you should write down and have handy. When people say, when people want to say that God has no purpose with the Jewish people anymore, his promises to the Jewish people are abrogated, you need to know where these verses are. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35. Because God wrote these verses in anticipation of those who would say, oh, look at all what happened in the Jewish history. God is surely done with them. The, the promises of Israel transferred to us, the church. God says this, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a night by day, a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, in other words, all those things that have just been described in verse 35, if those things depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, which it can't, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, which it can't, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. He is saying that, look, my promises to Israel, rock solid. Their position in the land, rock solid. And then we come to Ezekiel. 
And Ezekiel chapter 36, this is what we read, uh, provided I get to the right place. Ezekiel chapter 36, boom. Ezekiel 36 verses 19 through 24. Uh, there uh, we, we read the following. This is God speaking about his renewal of Israel in the last days. He says, so I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And Art's going to handle that more specifically. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your name's sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations. And then skipping down to verse 24, for I will take you from among the nations, which he's done, gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean and I will be cleansed. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. This is God speaking about gathering back his people in the land. The land that he promised them forever. And this is God now setting up what we know of as the reconstitution of the state of Israel. We don't have time to do it now. But I urge you, read the next chapter. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And there, using the imagery of a human body that has been decayed so badly that all the flesh is gone, all the sinew is gone, the bones are scattered throughout a dry and arid land, they're being bleached in the sun, and then all of a sudden, through the power of the Holy Spirit, bone connects to bone, the hip bone connects to the thigh bone, and all that stuff starts happening. And then sinew and muscle starts coming on this, this body. And it, it's, it, it, the breath of God is breathed into it, and it comes to life. And that is a metaphor describing the reconstitution, the reestablishment of Israel in their land. So here's what I want to leave you with. And by the way, there's a lot of scripture here. It's very frustrating to, to, to go through that kind of trail and not give you a more detailed uh, exposition of those, of those verses. But if you want this outline that I prepared for this, send me an email, pastordavid at calvarychapelhill.org. I'll send it to you. Don't tell me in the hall because I'll forget. But if you send me an email, I will send it back to you. Okay? Uh, but here's what we got to come away with. We see what's going on there in Israel. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. It could, it could ignite literally a world war or a regional war. This is terrible. Don't fret. Don't fear. You are simply seeing the fulfillment of what we've just looked at. This is, this is blessed assurance that God's word is true, that God is a promise keeper. Don't hold your breath. Don't bet any money on a two-state solution. Ain't going to happen. Don't let anyone tell you that ultimately Israel will be kicked out of the land. Never will happen. And so be encouraged, be strengthened. Thank you very much.